0: Welcome to the Faith Effects Podcast, where life and faith meet. You know, recently I was thinking about uh, dreams I had as a kid and heroes I had as a kid. And and, uh, some of them you remember more vividly and then others you go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I remember being a young kid in grade school back in the 70s, which was a decade a long, long time ago. Uh, And, uh, you know, there was a movie that I actually never saw, but you'd see clips and pieces of it. And I thought this guy was just the coolest. Uh, The movie is probably best known for its song One Tin Soldier. You and I could probably start singing right now and torture everybody who's listening, but the movie was Billy Jack. Morning, Billy. You're illegally on Indian land. I'm sorry about that. I guess we just got caught up in the chase and uh, crossed over without knowing it.
1: You're a liar.
0: We got the law here, Billy Jack. When policemen break the law, then there isn't any law. Billy Jack was this indigenous Vietnam vet uh, who sort of comes uh, not on purpose and, and saves uh, saves this town. I thought Billy Jack was the coolest guy in the world. He had this very, he had this awesome flat-brimmed cowboy hat, black velvet uh, with... Uh, it was just a great band around it, and and jean jackets and stuff, and and was just amazing at martial arts. He was sort of he was sort of the Prairie Boys uh, Bruce Lee, and I remember more than anything, I wanted to be Billy Jack, right? But I realized in my neighborhood where I grew up in North Central Regina, that Billy Jack was for my friends, my Indigenous friends. They could aspire to Billy, be Billy Jack, and, and I really couldn't
1: but you, you had a kind of a similar, well, I was a Billy Jack fan for sure. In fact, uh, about two years ago, I was in a hotel room and watched uh, one of the Billy Jack movies. And, and I was equally fascinated, but, you know, my sort of, uh, I guess in, you know, wanting something of, of indigenous culture goes back to 1968. And that was a year that Paul Revere and the Raiders released their song Cherokee Nation. And it was just, it just had a great uh, bass riff in it, just this deep, deep groove in it. But I, I, there's a, at the very end, you know, sort of all the ways the Cherokee nation have been wiped out and decimated. And then this last line that builds and builds toward the climax is that one day the Cherokee nation will return, will return, will return. And I experienced this utter thrill of the prospect. I didn't understand anything else. I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who the Cherokee Nation was, but just yeah. sense that there was something that had been lost, that would be regained again. Um, and so <clears throat> that was uh, I'm looking back now, kind of a formative experience for me in terms of t- starting to understand something uh, in a, in a very kind of pop culture way, something of, the history of people who had lived in this, in this continent and on this land much longer than I.
0: Well, today's guest isn't Billy Jack, uh, but he is still a guy I aspire to be, who I still find fascinating, who's one of my heroes, and he really is one of my very best friends. Uh, and uh, today on Faith Effects, uh, we're privileged to have with us uh, the Reverend Dr. Ray Aldred, uh, who's currently residing after he dumped you and I at Vancouver School of Theology.
1: Can't wait, let's get into this episode of Faith Effects. Uh, today at Faith Effects, we have a, a esteemed guest and he's a personal friend of both Bernie's and mine. In fact, a lot of the guests we have, either Bernie knows them or I know them, but usually not both. In this case, our guest today, we both have, he's been a colleague to both of us, a friend to both of us, Ray Aldred, actually Reverend Dr. Ray Aldred. He's husband, father, grandfather. He's ordained through the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Canada. Ray is status Cree from Swan River Band, part of Treaty 8. He's born in northern Alberta, but now resides in Richmond, British Columbia, Canada. And he teaches as a director of indigenous studies program at the Vancouver School of Theology. I know that he's gonna talk a bit about that work. The stated mission of his role is to partner with indigenous church around theological education, but I know it's broader than that. And we'll hear from our guest, Ray Aldred and welcome Ray.
2: Hey, good to be here.
1: It
0: it to me it's it's weird to have Ray here uh as uh as a guest uh Mark and and Ray will understand this cuz I was just thinking like Ray and I have known each other for about 35 years, eh, but I mean it's Yep.
2: A long time. Ever ever since big boys Bible study.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, we uh I feel bad about saying this, but we uh we went to college together. We we uh we skipped class together we ate cinnamon buns together uh i you know i yeah we just we have just so much history uh and uh and when he you know when he dumped us i felt just so personally hurt but you know i i got to play a small part in one of his daughter's weddings his kids are like my extended kids uh yeah we played uh sports together oh just and man i miss him terribly but i but I also at the same time know that he's in the right place and the place he ought to be. So it's great to see his face uh, and be back here with him again.
1: Yeah, it is so good. I haven't known you Ray, as long as, as you and Bernie go back, but we worked together for five years and I so enjoyed that. So enjoyed your friendship. So enjoyed your collegiality. I, I, I want to highlight for me, I don't know if you remember this, but you gave me an Eagle's feather. And uh, that was an incredible gift. I still have that. In fact, I I just looked at it. It's in a prominent place in our home just before we started this interview. And uh, I've always cherished that gift. So thank you for that.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. Well, you were kind of one of the only guys. You two guys were the only guys who sort of uh, came and said, hey, we screwed up. Sorry, Mm -hmm. we're losing you. Nobody else did that.
1: <laughs> so. I, st- I still feel it. I-, I still feel it. I felt that we have had in you uh, a-, a great and deep treasure and didn't totally understand that until it got away on us. And maybe many didn't even understand it then.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a little uncomfortable seeing all these nice things about you because we're such close friends <laughs> and that's not the way guys normally operate. But... Uh, you know, I think it's important to give you sort of the the first last word. So, you know, that's who, you know, we say here, but what about you? Uh, How do you understand yourself? You know, how do you describe yourself? How do you self-identify?
2: I'm just an old guy. I'm just an old guy. No, I'm, I am getting older. I mean, I told some university students yesterday, I said, you guys are kind of freaking me out because they were sort of impinging on my space during COVID. I said, I'm kind of panicked about the whole thing, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I usually introduce myself like most Indigenous people, Indigenous people and Mennonites tell who their relatives are. So, you know, I usually, you know, I have four adult kids. Bernie mentioned them. They're still doing okay. My daughter doesn't live too far from me. She's married and I have, she has two, two of my grandkids. They're close to me, about five kilometers away. And then, uh, you know, my oldest son, Raymond is recovering from a stroke he had in May and he was working on a PhD in philosophy at McGill university. And he's still living in Montreal. And then, uh, my daughter. Catherine and my youngest son Reuben are both in Grand Prairie. And uh got a couple of grandkids there too. And uh and I've been married for gee, it's gotta be let's see, 42 years this year. Wow. In October. Yeah, so that's kinda who I am and all my relatives. I kinda I think I'm related to. Just about everybody in canada <laughs>
0: no <laughs> well you got enough brothers to seem like an entire
2: nation anyways yeah yeah well you because you know i'm related i'm related to to the cree because i'm related my my grandmother was metis and then i'm related to the haudenosaunee and uh and uh my dad's white so i'm related to the welshman so that's where his ancestors came from, so.
1: Hey Ray, we were bantering as we started about working together, uh, all being colleagues for, um, for you and Bernie, that goes back a ways. In fact, it goes back prior to working together and for you and I, uh, about five years at Ambrose as, uh, colleagues and, Then you, as Bernie describes it, you kind of uh, dumped us and you've gone off to a a balmier climate and a different role at Vancouver School of Theology. Tell us a bit about that transition. uh, What's what's gone on? What's changed for you? What's remained the same?
2: Well, really, I I suppose you could describe it this way, that uh, when I was working at Ambrose, I, you know, I could teach theology to anybody, but I mean, it, it became more and more, because Ambrose, when I went there, I thought they wanted to sort of impact First Nations sort of ministry and people. and But then it became evident that uh, that wasn't the case. And uh, not so much because... They looked at it said, oh, we don't want to do that. It was more of a case, well, there's these other things that are probably bigger in scope, maybe larger people groups or, or other things. And so then, so it became more and more that I was doing at Ambrose. I did all this stuff at Ambrose so that I could do what I really felt called to do, which was to uh, train Indigenous leaders in the Indigenous church, and and VST was offering me, Vancouver School of Theology was offering me to lead the Indigenous Studies program, whose sole purpose was to uh, work with the Indigenous church to empower Indigenous clergy, so it was like I got to get paid to do the very thing that I wanted to do, and Ambrose was more and more... It was, you know, I was doing stuff and it was all good. I mean, I think it's cool to be able to be, to teach and, and see people you taught go into ministry. I like, I don't, it's not like that was second best or anything, but it wasn't, it wasn't kind of what I really felt gave me life on one level to the same degree. There's no way that I can say it that someone doesn't end up sounding put down, but I don't mean it to be that way if it does sound like that.
1: I I don't hear that, Ray. I think that um, (laughs) everything prepares us for for the next thing, and this is the the thing that uh, you've been waiting and preparing all your life for.
2: Yeah, yeah. There was two other differences. Mm, uh, The other one was financial. I mean, I didn't have to argue for money to do stuff. Like, there was money. And... The school went out, goes, they just make it part of their task to find monies for me to do what I need to do. And I've got to do some significant, like we've raised, since I came here, we've raised close to $800,000 for doing work in Indigenous communities. And, uh, and And the third thing, which Joanne badly put her finger on one time. When I was there, just before I left, I don't have to justify myself all the time to overzealous individuals who wanted to tell me what I could and could not do culturally as an indigenous person. I don't have to, like, I don't, I just don't have to deal with that. And it was nice not to, to be honest.
0: I've. I... I've put it this way for you, which I shouldn't do, but I've always thought that that what you used to be able to do at Ambrose accidentally or supplementally, you now get to do essentially.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's good. See, that's a better PowerPoint than mine.
0: (laughs) Oh, the the old competitions continue, eh?
2: Oh, yeah. Bernie always made better PowerPoints than I did.
0: Yeah, but you you were always way more... You were way more... What was the word we used to use? Way more uh, exotic. Here.
2: Exotic and romantic.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, that long hair, man. That, yes. I, I mean, that's long just.
2: Yeah. If you got it, flaunt it. That's the yeah, key. Thanks
1: a lot. Thanks a lot, Ray.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> this, this essential work that you're doing at VST, you sort of, what's at the heart of what you're doing these days? What's keeping you busy? What's, what's churning your engines?
2: Well, I think I think I'm on the same page as both of you in that I am a church person. Like theological education exists is a servant of the church. That's that's there is no there is no it has no genius in itself. It's not it's it exists for the good of the church. That's why theological education exists and that's why The Indigenous Studies Program. We exist to train and uh, facilitate, build on, give capacity, build on capacity for Indigenous leaders in the Indigenous Church. That's really what I do, and uh, and I do that in a variety of ways. Now, one of the shifts. Now I'm following Archbishop Mark McDonald's lead on this, because he's always. It's it's been mutual, but as we've talked over the years, there needed to be a shift uh, from a professionalization of clergy and sort of a hierarchy, you know, the whole cult of leadership that developed in in the free church tradition and the clergy sort of hierarchy in the in sort of the mainline older denominations, but all of it tended to professionalize ministry. And and it's part of it is built on the individualization that exists in modern Western society. So that most of theological education is aimed at building capacity in an individual person and that individual person is somehow, if you get enough of powerful individuals, then maybe the community will change, I guess, is the thinking. But we shifted to think in terms of, instead of thinking, building capacity in an individual, building capacity in a community. So what is, what are the, what does a community think its needs are? What is, how does the community meet those spiritual needs, not, not just so then our focus shifted to try to spread or just reaffirm what god was already doing and trying to turn up turn on those whole turn those whole categories upside down so then it so just to affirm what you know the reformation affirms the priesthood of all believers this that, that that's really true so then and also it was just building on the good practice of the indigenous church in the past was really built on catechists and lay readers, not primarily upon foreign missionaries or or priests. So it was in, you know, just like Andrew Walls says in Africa, these itinerant African evangelists filled the church. It's the same in Canada that itinerant indigenous people filled up their churches that's that's who built the church in canada which not everybody realizes sometimes
1: Hmm. ray i've been very impressed by the archbishop mark mcdonald's emphasis on i think he calls it gospel centered Discipleship,
2: is gospel-based right? discipleship. Right. I did wrote talk- the I wrote the theological foundation for that.
1: Tell us about that, because it's fascinating, and I think we could learn so much from that model in in the, our sort of suburban evangelical churches.
2: The basic theology is really well. I didn't write all. I did was i just observed that there was a paper that i wrote what was it called the resurrection of story 2000 and when no one mark heard that he goes that's it that's the theological foundation for gospel-based discipleship gospel-based discipleship developed in alaska and minnesota and i think it was used in africa too parts of parts in africa but basically the idea was for indigenous folks that we place what is most sacred in the center so then the Nishnabe people would use the drum. You know, the drum is sacred, so it was in the center. And for the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota, the pipe was sacred, so it was in the center. Well, when Indigenous people embraced the gospel, they said the gospel needs to be in the center. So then, and it was also a response to that the church was pulling out of Indigenous communities that They were pulling the priests out. They were closing churches in indigenous communities. So they wanted to develop something that would continue, that the gospel would continue to be proclaimed, built on this idea of what had built a church was catechists and lay readers. So they developed gospel-based discipleship, which is kind of a, and it's all based on the baptismal covenant and, uh, And the idea was that two or three were two or three gathered together. And so then they just, it's just a little book that provides a gospel, the disciples prayer book. And so then they would just, um, it's just a short Lectio Divina. You begin with a gathering prayer, which acknowledges that Christ is in the center of all things. And the whole idea was to encounter Christ through the gospels. And then they would read the gospel three times. The first time they would ask, what are the images or pictures that come to mind? The second time you would, and people would respond. The idea was that the sermon or the, was the people were giving the sermon and doing this or proclaiming the gospel, the words and images, and then they'd read it again. And then they'd ask, what is it saying to you through the, what is Jesus or the gospel saying to you? And then they would read it again. And then they would say, what is it telling us to do? So then, and then he would live that out. And the idea was that people, if you had a lay reader or a catechist, that they could do that in the community every couple of weeks so that the gospel the church which is already there would have would gather around the gospel so that was the idea
1: so good my my wife uh, every thursday night meets with uh on zoom with estonian Stony Nakoda woman and a danae woman and they do this very thing uh yeah. so thank you thank you for <laughs> being the one who who sort of introduced this
2: no, all I did was what theologians do. I yeah. came on I came around after thing was already going and then just say, "Yeah, that's a good idea." And here's the theological reasons why it's a good idea.
1: True. Yeah, theology follows practice usually, doesn't it? Uh, You and I worked together on a few things while you lived in Calgary, and we did a bit of traveling together and spoke at a few events, and a lot of that was for the non-Indigenous Church around thinking through response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They wrapped up their work, the TRC, in 2015 uh, and began to release the, the volumes of of their findings or research, including the 94 calls to action to churches and uh, government organizations and educational institutes, institutions, etc. cetera. Ray, how, how involved are you in, in kind of helping non-Indigenous churches think through TRC response? Now, six years later, after the, the final reports were released, And where is that at in your, in general, in your view? So what's your ongoing involvement, if any, and where is it at?
2: With the TRC? Well, you know, I am part of, actually, I was invited to a conference in uh, Norway, Tromsø, in 2019, just before the COVID pandemic hit, and, uh, because there was a gathering where they were talking about the trc so there was a truth and reconciliation commission happening in norway because norway had engaged about the same time maybe a little later not a couple decades later Tr- norway engaged in a process that's come been it's known as norwegianization where they tried to force the sami and i think some swedish migrants to only speak norwegian and they did it in the same way that the residential schools engaged in that process in canada so i was invited there and there were also some representatives from south africa some scholars from south africa because norway was trying to learn from canada and south africa so that they don't repeat some of the same mistakes but also build on some of the things that were positive positive. and uh, from that meeting there's a couple things. One, sometimes the church, I think there was a scholar from South Africa said that the church became so such a dominant voice in the TRC in South Africa that many folks who were unchurched didn't think they had a part in the whole process. So then you're leaving behind society and and it becomes just a church-focused thing. And I think that how I've tried to combat that. And and it's the same thing in Canada. Sometimes the church, even though they were in one sense, the institutional church, the newcomer church, not the indigenous church, were, they were the ones who were guilty. And yet they want to be the ones that pronounce absolution. They want to be the ones who are driving the whole process. And so that's sort of a weakness is that the church, because we're, the church is u- used to that language of reconciliation, wants to be in control of it, wants to make it happen. You know, and if you're actually the one who's been guilty of the abuse, you don't get to do that. It, I always think of Job's friends. They are struck with leprosy right at the end of Job, and, and the Creator says to them, you gotta go to my servant Job and he'll pray for it. Because you've spoken wrongly. He said the right stuff. You got to go to him and get him to pray for you. That's what has to happen. So somehow you gotta have you, the conversation's gotta be turned so that the church comes to indigenous people and just and and I've said this, I don't know how many times you gotta say it you got to say, and you just say, look, we've really screwed up. Just We just want to listen. Just want to listen. Of course, as soon as you say that, people in the room will start telling you stories how they're not like that. That's usually what happens. All these people begin to tell you stories about how they're not like all those other people who do that. And that's the thing about systemic racism. Very few people are, you know, overtly, I don't think. There's very few people who are of old, you know, just overtly racist. I don't think there's tons of people like that, but there's all these racist policies that we just give a wink and a nod to, and don't do anything to just you know, take those apart. That's, that's the challenge. So on the West coast here, one of the things I noticed. And what I continue to do for the church is how we're blind to those things. We're blind to sort of race, racist sort of policies. We just, we get, we're we so used to them. We just never think about them. I suppose there's a bit of an analogy about when it comes to men, you know, as a man, and especially because I most of my life I've been a large, large Cree man. Uh, <laughs> you command a certain level of respect just by coming into the room that, A a woman of smaller stature that she never gets that. She never gets that. And I don't think I'll ever understand what it will be like for her to deal with crap like that. I think it's sometimes it's the same for people who are in dominant society, who've always had enough money, who's always had a place to live, who've never had to struggle with the system really. Other, you know, and I'm not talking about you had to argue about getting to stay in a hotel in Toronto coming back from overseas. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about struggling against the system and, uh, people just don't understand, so I don't know what the solution to that is. So I still do a little bit of that, but, uh, I actually spend most of my time just working with indigenous communities, usually out of the way places. I, I don't know. It's just, cause I'm 61 and you can't keep, you, I just don't have time to do all the other stuff with other folks. I don't, I don't do as much of it because I get frustrated. Maybe you get old and crabby. Maybe that's my problem. You just, you get tired of it because you, you know, I remember after 20 years, I think I No. So then there was a denomination 20 years ago. I did some consulting with them on reconciliation and it was about whether they could do culture or not in the church. 20 years later, they come back to me and they're still having the same argument. And I thought, Oh, good night. I'm done. So I just told them, look, I'll read your final report and I'll make some comments, but I'm done. Like you guys. This is like a no-brainer, and you're still fighting about it. So on one level, if you think about it like this, the problem for the residential school and Canadian society at that time, which was much more uh, permeated by Christianity, I think, their problem with Indigenous people is that they were not Christian enough. They were not Christian enough, but lots of denominations continue to do that to other denominations. They continue to say, Oh, those people over there aren't Christian enough. And that's the problem. So that's just furthering the religious conflict that I think it's action step like 61 or 62, that churches should stop doing that sort of fighting in indigenous communities. Just stop it. Just quit, quit. And, uh, Just talk about, and that's why the gospel-based discipleship. uh, I thought we could all agree that the gospel is somehow important. That's my two big tenets for theology, right? Number one, uh, Jesus is somehow important for theology, Christian theology. Number two, the Bible is somehow important for Christian theology. So we can at least agree on that point. So uh, I don't do a lot of it anymore, talking with, just because you get frustrated after a bit. And you only have so much energy, so maybe the young folks will come along and they'll do it. In fact, I met with a bunch of them one time and I just said, I'm old. All I can tell you is what I did, what we did in the past, and you're going to have to figure out what to do because I don't know.
0: So, Ray, you know, we're talking in a particular time in a particular situation. And, and uh, as you noted earlier, uh, COVID has, has shaped who you are, uh, but it's also shaped the, the world in general. How has COVID shaped your life as a theologian of the church? Uh, what What's shifted in these days of never ending pivots for you?
2: I think that, uh, I think I've learned to pray a little better because I think that's the job I'm supposed to be doing now. I'm supposed to learn how to pray that came to me even before COVID. I was just thinking about, you know, I'm on the back I'm on the back nine. Right. So if I live to be as old as my father, I'll live another 20 years or so. And, uh, I think I'm supposed to learn how to pray. And so that's kind of what I've been doing. And next, and also, I guess when I focus on theology, I, I focus more on, I'm teaching you this so that you can teach others these things. Not, I'm not trying to produce, there are people who will go on to be scholars and get PhDs and get MDivs, but most people don't need an MDiv and won't get a PhD in theology. But you should be able to help people understand why theology is important. And I guess in the last couple, three years, I've kind of, I don't know, it's like I, I finally understood, and then, but then two weeks from now, I'll realize I never really understood. So I'm understanding the significance of the Eucharist, and of baptism, and of the presence of Christ, that really permeates, as Luther says, the ubiquitous body of Christ that permeates all of creation. And perhaps in the Eucharist and in the sacraments, we just see, we see that in a different way when we come together, two or three. And, uh, and also, I've been struck, particularly this since Advent, how we really do follow Christ and His journey. He really did go before us, and we we're on this journey. And so then, as a theologian, my job is to help people see how... I think Leslie Newbig and I know Henry Nowen put it this way, our job is to help people see how what we're going through fits in on the way to the resurrection despite covid we live in a it's it's a good world it's a good world i get up in the morning and i go for my bike ride and i say it's a good world it's a good world and the creator has put everything we need and is preparing a place that when i leave this place then i'll go to be with the venerated ancestors and i think it's my job is to live a life that others could follow because i was following christ so i thought that was the job of a theologian you know and then those other things like uh you know, help critique popular theology when it's getting kind of going sideways, because we tend to do that, right? Calvin was right. Perpetual idol factories, and we think we have it. You know, when we're in this ditch, and then we kind of run over to this ditch, and then we run across to this ditch, and so...
1: Ray, as as we're starting to wrap up, uh, I always picture when we do these interviews uh, one of those young guys you talked about or young gals you talked about, somebody, uh, you know, they're in their 20s, maybe early 30s or a leader in the church and they're wanting it to look different from the church they inherited. They want it to look different racially, culturally, maybe some shifts theologically. Do you have a word for that young leader in the church in terms of how they might just do a few things differently from the person who was in that role before them?
2: Boy, that's tough, you know, because I think probably uh, learn earlier to... Embrace the love of Christ. So then, I like what biggins or uh Nowen says. The first task, really, of Christian discipleship is to realize that you are the beloved. I think most people in the church struggle with a lot of self hatred, and you need to you need to deal with that and embrace the love of Christ, and then. Embrace whatever the pain is that we are enduring and then realize that you're given for the church, like the Eucharist. I think, uh, I just think that you should take the time to learn and understand. That's one thing I wouldn't have done differently, except maybe gone earlier, is to go to I liked Bible college because it was a chance to really take time to just think about and embrace the gospel. And if you're fortunate, you end up in a school that allows you to do that. I'm not sure. I don't know if all schools, I didn't go to all schools, but I went to one that was pretty good. I got a chance to do that. And then uh, just embrace Christ and realize that Christ is, is there. I mean cuz that's the thing that I didn't do. I don't I don't think I realized I didn't embrace the love of Christ really until about 5 years into my ministry. I was already ordained and I think I think that's when I entered into the abundant life as A.B. Simpson called it perfectionist the Methodist called it And uh, I got a dose of the ghost, as the Pentecostals used to call it, because it really did, I really did find this fresh energy to love people around me and to want to share Jesus, just the stories of Jesus. I stopped trying to convert people. Because I realized my job is to share the gospel. And the Spirit does the whatever else happens. That's the Spirit's job. So,
0: Awesome. Awesome. It's been, it's been great seeing you again, friend. Uh, so many fantastic memories, uh, not only of playing together, and we got a lot of those. Uh, but working and teaching together, uh, came back and plugged my mind and you bring a smile to my face like you always do. And at the same time, in what you said, give me a little serious pause as well to think about things. And so I appreciate uh, you having you here. Uh, Ray Aldridge, uh, professor at Vancouver uh, School of Theology, big shot uh, out there, uh, left, left this little boy in the dust. Uh, Thanks for being a guest here.
2: Hey, you're welcome.
0: This episode of Faith Effects was produced for Ambrose University in Calgary, Alberta, by Anthony Hoisington, that's me, at Old Bear Records in Batavia, New York.